Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and today I am joined by Jasmine Tribe to talk about ethical periods. Jasmine works for an environmental organization called City to Sea, which is working to stop plastic pollution. She is the campaign manager for City to Sea's Plastic Free Periods campaign. Hi, Jasmine. <laughs> Hi, Kristen. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe just to start, you could tell people about what City to Sea is and what you guys are trying to do. So City to Sea is an environmental nonprofit, and our core mission is to stop plastic pollution from source. And we do really focus on um, that from source aspect. So we don't do any kind of beach cleans or anything. We're all about... Um, tackling the kind of most commonly found items of litter but trying to get them um trying to stop them being produced in the first place basically so we run people-powered community serving campaigns that help individual people businesses communities and government to find ways to better look after our planet and our health as well so lots of our work is um digital so we do things like petitions, we make videos, we make guides. Um, and then we also do a lot of work on the ground with things like installing water fountains for communities, uh, working with supermarkets to get more refill options available for food and drinks and toiletries and things. And then we also do work with schools as well. So we train up school staff. That's amazing. And uh, I imagine you guys have been doing a little bit of work on COVID now, too, uh, <laughs> since uh, it's sort of everything these days. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we have done quite a big push on um, communications around the single-use masks, um, which have obviously just been used in huge numbers globally and it's kind of frustrating because we've seen a, a really big global movement uh, which where people have this kind of really heightened awareness of plastic pollution in the last few years. And there's been a lot of action to, to try and reduce that and to try and reduce single-use plastic production. And then COVID has happened and the plastic industry has really, really used the pandemic as an opportunity to be pushing out more single-use plastics. They've been really kind of, yeah, pushing the narrative that single-use plastic is more hygienic than reusable, um, reusable items in, in lots of different um, kind of areas. So like, as well as masks, also things like coffee cups and water bottles and things. And there have been lots and lots of scientists saying that if you are just <laughs> sensible, then using reusable products is just as hygienic. And in some cases, even more hygienic than using the single use stuff. Um, so, yeah, we've been doing a lot of um, campaigning around encouraging people to use reusable masks in particular and also trying to get the cafes that are still open for takeaway to accept reusable coffee cups in a way that's safe for everybody involved. Well, that's so great. I feel like there are no uh, cafes in my neighborhood that are doing that. <laughs> I really wish they would. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so you're the, you're the campaign manager for the Plastic Free Periods campaign. Do I have your job title right? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> 
Great. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about what your job is and uh, what the Plastic Free Periods campaign is. Yeah, of course. So I do find my job quite hard to describe, to be honest. Um, I've been (laughs) in the position for about three years and that's kind of um, from the start of this campaign, really. I joined just after the campaign had kind of kicked off. Um, And before I started this job, I didn't even really know what the word campaign meant or campaigning meant. I'd done lots of work on um, environmental projects and educational projects, but I didn't kind of understand the difference between campaigning and project work. And basically campaigning is just like a series of projects with really specific goals, very specific target audiences. And for us, um, as a behavior change organization, we have very specific behavior change goals that we would like to achieve. And then there are all sorts of tactics and methods that we can use to help achieve those goals. So in practice, that means that I work (laughs) with my team and I work with partners and they might be other organizations or they might be brands or uh, retailers or individuals sometimes um, to help well to create projects that have a few different goals so one of the kind of main aims of our projects is to simply raise awareness of the fact that there is plastic in our period products because there are still so many people that don't know that Um, Another kind of core part of our campaign is to highlight all of the solutions and the alternatives to the products that contain plastic, because there are just so many better options out there now. And then we also really want to be part of making those solutions, those alternatives accessible to everybody, because, you know, it's pointless having these kind of eco-friendly, health-friendly products if nobody can access them it's just not sustainable unless everybody can can use them um and then what actually began as our kind of original goal for the campaign is now just a kind of um underlying message with all of this but not our key focus and that's to do with um flushing behavior so i imagine we might go into this a little bit more (laughs) sure yeah yeah one of the big problems is flushing so We do work around trying to change that behavior. And then as well as kind of working with my campaign manager hat on, I'm also a teacher trainer. So through our school's program, which is called Rethink Periods, I train up school teachers and school nurses um, to deliver a really kind of holistic and well-resourced period education program. Yeah, I'm curious about the Rethink Periods program, um, I know that it's in schools, but how does that program work and what um, what is the what are the kinds of things that would be taught in those programs? So I guess it's worth explaining first that we don't, through this program, go directly into schools to talk to students. Um, and I think it's great organizations that... Um, you know, their kind of strength is talking to young people. I think that's brilliant. And that's really helpful, especially when teachers are a bit uncertain about delivering a topic or maybe just needed to see someone else do it first so that they felt (laughs) confident doing it. Um, But our 
model is that we train up teachers and we train up school nurses so that they feel really equipped um, to deliver this stuff themselves and then go on to deliver that for years and years and years to come. So it's kind of a long-term project. And we we have evening sessions where we spend a couple of hours with a group of teachers and we talk to them about all of the kind of issues that surround periods and there are so many there's there's obviously the kind of biological aspect of periods and that's often the part that is taught quite well in schools so generally they don't they don't actually need much information on that but then what is mostly not covered very well in schools or definitely not in much depth is looking at all the different products that are on offer and how those different products suit different lifestyles, different people, um, you know, different economic backgrounds. And also looking at things like um, period inequality. So exploring what it means to experience period poverty. And, you know, that can be a lack of education. It can be a lack of products. Um, and there are other there are other kind of contextual issues that we explore as well, like the language that we use when we talk about periods and how we can be really inclusive with that. And then we, of course, do also talk about the kind of environmental implications of certain products and how we can reduce those. So it's a very broad scope. And we basically train the teachers in an evening and then all those teachers get access to loads of free resources. So like lesson plans and worksheets. And they also get sent a beautiful um, box full of all the different type of period products. And we really, really encourage them to hand those out with their students and let the students kind of feel them. And if they want, even take them apart, like really explore what those products kind of feel like and look like. Well, that sounds really amazing. I wish uh, <laughs> wish my teachers growing up had been trained that way. <laughs> I'm curious if you could maybe um, talk a little bit more about the environmental impact of disposable period products. Yeah, definitely. Um, I th- so I guess I'll start with the kind of the basic facts around this um, because I don't know how aware your listeners will be of of these things. So for some people, this might just be a bit of a refresher, but to lots and lots of people that we talk to, these facts are kind of a big shock. So with conventional uh, big brand pads, disposable pads, um, one pack, which generally is about 14 pads, contains the same amount of plastic as five carrier bags. And that's that's a lot of plastic um but lots of people aren't super shocked with the pads because they feel really plasticky don't they they're like (laughs) all crinkly and very noisy and (laughs) it's it's easy to imagine that they have plastic in whereas people generally tend to be more yeah shocked and sometimes a bit disgusted to hear that tampons also contain a lot of plastic and it's not just the applicators it's not just the wrappers but the bit that is actually inserted inside the body contains plastic and the string contains plastic and there were kind of lots of different issues with this but the environmental issue is firstly that 
these products use virgin plastic and that's obviously linked to um uh using more fossil fuels you know we want to be reducing the amount of fossil fuels that we're having to mine so um we should yeah we shouldn't be putting plastic in these products that really don't need plastic in them um and the kind of on the ground issue i guess which affects more people on a day-to-day basis is that in the UK, I don't know the stats for Canada, I'm afraid, but in the UK, about 4.5 million pads, tampons and liners are flushed down our toilets. And most of our toilet system is like a Victorian sewage system. So our pipes, our sewers are made to deal with basically any kind of bodily fluids. Uh, so poo, paper, toilet paper and pee. and they are not made to deal with the crazy number of other things that are now going down them, like cotton buds, contact lenses, um, sometimes the packaging of medication. Um, some people flush nappies, like there's all sorts of stuff <laughs> going down there, which just isn't, um, it can't be processed properly. And all those things kind of combine and, and, um, they combine with things like um, kitchen fats and oils as well. And they produce what we call here fatbergs. <laughs> Delightful name. Lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then basically when we have a fatberg, that's a, a huge blockage in the sewers. If there's then heavy rain or a heavy kind of sewage input, we end up with the sewers overflowing. And sometimes if you're really unlucky, that might mean that your like bathroom gets flooded or something. But usually you see that as overflow into a street. And then very commonly, um, that stuff is directly discharged into rivers. And so from there, all of these products that contain plastic end up getting stuck along the riverbank or they make their way all the way out to the sea. And that's why we see them kind of along the strand line often. And I used to be so confused because I, before <laughs> I was in this job, I did um, marine research and education. So I spent a lot of time in the sea and on beaches. And I just saw so many uh, tampon applicators. And I know that um, tampon applicators aren't a kind of commonly used thing in lots of countries. But here they're they're very common and they're solid plastic. So they, they kind of stay on the beach looking like a tampon applicator for a really long time. And I would just be thinking, like, who who is changing their <laughs> tampon on the beach? It's the most unprivate place I can think of. And was really baffled. And it wasn't until I did this job that I was like, oh, it's because people are flushing them down the toilet. <laughs> it all made sense suddenly. <laughs> yeah so in the, in Europe now period products have become the fifth most common item littering beaches so they're more common than single use coffee cups single use straws and um, single use cutlery and of course you know like straws and coffee cups get so much press but the nature of periods means that period products aren't spoken about anywhere near as much as those other items of plastic pollution yeah that's I mean uh, in Canada, we're working towards implementing a single-use plastics ban, and like menstrual products haven't come up at all. I'm wondering in the UK and the EU, is is that similarly sort of an emission there? So 
In the European Single-Use Plastics Directive, they're definitely not being banned. They're not included in that list of things that are banned. Um, but they are included in the list of things which will need to have a label which shows that they contain plastic, which is great. And it's it's like a really clear <laughs> label that literally, I think they're still kind of finalizing the imagery, but one of the options is like a turtle in the sea that's dead. So it's, it's very um, <laughs> crude and obvious that it's saying it's got plastic in it, um, <laughs> which is a really great start because it, it kind of removes this initial barrier to um, people finding out about other alternatives because, you know, lots of people won't bother exploring the other options because they don't realize that there's a problem in the first place. Whereas if it's that much in your face, it, you know, you're more likely to question if it's the right thing for you or not. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great idea. Uh, I'm wondering um, if you can maybe talk a little bit about the reusable alternatives there are and maybe some of the ones that are easier to access um, or that might be less intimidating for people that are just starting. Yeah, so I imagine that the one that um, most people will have heard of is a menstrual cup. Often when I tell people my job, they're like, oh, so you work with menstrual cups. And that's the, that's the first <laughs> thing that comes into their head. And I think it's because they've been around for a pretty long time. And I guess because of the way that periods have been spoken about kind of forever, um, they've been very controversial because you're kind of so in contact with your menstrual blood when you're using one. Um, but for anyone who doesn't know, a menstrual cup is an internal product like a tampon, and it should be made of medical grade silicon, latex or TPE. So you, you want to make sure it's medical grade. And you basically kind of fold the cup, you insert it in the same way as you would a tampon, and then you can wear it. Uh, it depends where you are in the world. Some countries will say eight hours, some will say 12 hours. They generally hold a lot more than tampons, so you'd have to change them a lot less than tampons. Um, then you can remove it, you rinse it out, and then you reinsert it again. And then every month you give it a proper sterilize so it's completely clean. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of menstrual cups. and <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I feel like for people who um, try a menstrual cup and it then works, like they just want to talk about it all the time because it really changes your period experience so much. Did you find that? <laughs> yeah. And also it pays for itself almost immediately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So much kind of cost saving opportunities with reusables. And I think the menstrual cup is the one with the biggest cost saving because they can cost between kind of 11 pounds I know you don't work in pounds, but <laughs> um, 11 no, no worries. <laughs> and kind of 25 pounds here. And then they can last for 10 years. So that is just incredible considering an, an average period. If you were calculating the kind of cost of your period over your whole lifetime and you were using disposable products only, it would be a, nearly 5,000 pounds and you know, compare that to spending yeah. <laughs> maybe 15 pounds over 10 years, and then you might buy like three or four of them or something. Um, yeah, huge cost saving benefits with a menstrual cup in particular. Um, but then we also have 
products like washable pads, which again are generally more well known than some of the products that I'll speak about in a minute, but they're also very similar to disposable pads. So they're cloth pads and they're made from all different types of materials depending on what brand you go for all different types of um, absorbencies so some are kind of thin like a liner and some are quite a lot thicker and you would put it in your pants as you would a disposable pad instead of there being glue or wings um, sorry glue or like sticky wings there are wings with poppers on them to fasten them in your pants and then you use them you can then hand wash them or chuck them in the washing machine and some people will ask me like oh but if I put them in the washing machine is it going to dye all my clothes red (laughs) Um, (laughs) no it's definitely not (laughs) and then you just hang them to dry and you can reuse them again so they they can also be used kind of generally for about five years each and then a similar product to the washable pads is period pants and these are pretty new on the market. They're basically like a normal pair of pants, but with absorbent layers built into the gusset. And people generally are really surprised at how, well, some people are kind of imagining that it will be like a nappy, basically. And then they see them, and they're like, oh, they just look like a normal pair of pants. <laughs> um, yeah, they're not as bulky as you'd expect. <laughs> no, not at all. They they do vary, of course. Like some pants absorb up to one tampon's worth of blood. Other pants absorb up to eight tampons worth of blood. So there's a big variety in the kind of thickness of that um, absorbent layer. But they've gone down really, really well since they've been available because they're just so easy. Like you're going to be putting a pair of pants on in the morning anyway, probably. <laughs> So why not pull on a pair of pants that have that absorbent layer and you can just kind of forget about your period. And they're also really good if you've got kind of painful periods or sensitive skin because those products that contain plastic can be really irritating if you've got sensitive skin. And then the final product, which I would say is the one which um, most people that I speak to haven't heard of, is a reusable applicator. So are tampon applicators quite commonly used in Canada? Yeah, they are. They are, okay. I've spoken to some people in other parts of Europe and they they haven't actually even really heard of tampon applicators, which is really interesting. (laughs) Okay, so you know what tampon applicator is. I mean, a reusable tampon applicator is literally what it sounds like. So you use it in exactly the same way as a disposable tampon applicator, but once you've used it you just rinse it or wipe it and then you pop it back in like a little purse or something um and you can use it again over and over again and that also lasts for about 10 years so if you think of how many single-use plastic applicators you'd be going through every month even if that was your kind of main choice of period care one of those reusable applicators could replace a lot of those single-use ones. For sure. But you're still using the disposable tampons, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, something I didn't mention was that you can also get tampons, pads, and liners that don't have plastic in them. 
So they're generally advertised as organic, and that's because the cotton that they're using is organic, but then also generally those brands are plastic-free, so there'll be no plastic kind of woven into the cotton. Um, And they also tend to have less plastic in the packaging and stuff as well. So for people that don't really want to explore a completely different product um, or maybe can't, you know, for certain like lifestyle or health reasons, those organic options are really good alternative kind of um, middle ground if you're looking to improve your environmental impact. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm wondering, um, so since a lot of your work is dealing in an area, there's a lot of period stigma and um, misinformation out there. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of the biggest myths you've come across are. I would say that this kind of period taboo, this period stigma is the biggest challenge that we face um, in terms of getting this conversation really into the mainstream. When we first started talking about this subject in 2016, 2017, it was when we were managing to get things into the press, it was really shocking to people to be talking about periods in public in the news. Um, And that has thankfully over the last few years really changed. And actually, I don't know if it's the same over there, but in the UK, there is now quite a lot of dialogue about periods in the news, particularly with COVID, um, because there's been a lot more discussion around period poverty. But it's still difficult to get a lot of people to engage on this subject because people still feel that shame and embarrassment around talking about periods. So this isn't one of the most commonly heard myths that I've come across, but it was one that really stuck with me. And that was, um, actually, it was something that a teacher told me who I was training. And she said that one of her boy students had been really convinced that period blood was blue. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that kind of seems like, huh? Like, where did that come from? But it's because since the beginning of period adverts they've been using blue liquid to demonstrate absorbency instead of using red liquid which is obviously what period blood actually looks like (laughs) it's just so absurd um yes (laughs) (laughs) and then there have been adverts more recently who have um thankfully started trying to push the boundaries a bit and say like actually this is ridiculous and we're just going to show a period as what it actually looks like in real life and there's been a lot of um pushback on that and it's been seen as really controversial so it's exciting we're at this kind of turning point but yeah there's there's still that stigma there of of just being upfront about what a period is and For that reason, we're very careful about the language that we use around periods. So we will always talk about periods (laughs) or like the menstrual cycle um, and period products, period pads, menstrual pads, um, instead of using kind of euphemisms um, like Auntie Flo. Mm -hmm. Sanitary napkins. Yeah, sanitary (laughs) pads, feminine hygiene, all that stuff. 
that kind of implies that periods are dirty or that we need to come up with like a secret way of talking about them, <laughs> which is just not true. That's <laughs> like so normal. It's so healthy to have a period. And yeah, we should be able to, to call them what they are. And I think actually that's something really small that everybody can get involved in is kind of just having a little bit of a rethink about the language that we use when we're talking about periods. Yeah, definitely. I wonder to what extent that um, conversation that's happening in the UK, because I really, I don't see it happening as much in Canada. So I wonder if it is sort of a product of your organization and other organizations that are pushing um, the conversation sort of into the open. And I hope that uh, similar things happen here as well. (laughs) We don't seem to have a similar conversation happening. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's definitely been some kind of uh, really key players that have been pushing this for years, um, yeah, who have really contributed to this increase in discussion. Like for example, we've got um, a young campaigner called Amika George who started a campaign called Free Periods a few years ago when she was a teenager and it was all about getting free period products into schools Um, So that has been really at the forefront of the kind of period poverty conversation here and was really quite groundbreaking for a a young woman and a young woman of colour as well to be really pushing this agenda. She's absolutely brilliant and they've been successful in getting our government to provide free period products in school. So that's been really amazing to see. Yeah, and then we've been kind of on the more environmental angle pushing that a lot in the media and there's another organization called um the women's environmental network who have been coming at it more from the health angle so maybe it's also that combination of lots of different organizations talking about the same thing but coming at it from lots of different angles so different people can relate that's kind of helped propel the conversation yeah that's i mean i think that's a really good way to look at it and since you'd mentioned um period poverty. I wonder whether you might be able to dig a little bit deeper into telling us sort of what it is and uh, how common it is. Yeah, of course. I'm I can only really give you info on that in the UK, I'm afraid. Um, totally. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's not massively um different over there. So period poverty is basically just uh, a lack of access to products or a lack of access to education or information around the menstrual cycle and periods. Um, It's quite often used just in the context of a lack of products, but I think it is really important to include that piece around the lack of education because in the UK, for example, one in four young people who were included in a survey that was done a couple of years ago um, had no idea what was happening to them when they started their period and for lots of people that I've spoken to that's really quite traumatic because you generally see blood in a kind of um a violent context or you know a a scary context so suddenly having blood coming from your body and not having a clue what that is is really quite scary um and it, and also on a slight side note, I've seen some great memes, <laughs> which are basically <laughs> pointing out that like 
in our culture, blood that comes from violence is generally quite accepted in terms of like what we see on TV and in the news and on social media. And then there is this one type of blood which comes uh, like in a really healthy, natural way from the body with absolutely no violence involved. And people seem to be so scared of it. <laughs> so yeah, total side note, but I found that comparison really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in the UK, we're lucky that we've had a fair bit of research done on this in the last few years, whereas before that, I think it was just totally lacking. Um, but the research has found that one in 10 young people have struggled to access period products, full stop. And then COVID and lockdown has made that jump to three in 10 young people have been struggling to access products. So it's, yeah, COVID and the pandemic has really impacted the people suffering from period poverty. Why, why is that? Is it um, income disruption or they're not going to schools right now? What's causing that? I think it's it's a big mixture. And yeah, partly it's down to people uh, losing their jobs or being on furlough and therefore struggling more economically. But also at the start of lockdown, certainly, um, I think everywhere had this really strange panic buying of toilet roll. Um, right. <laughs> and something that was also kind of really low on stock was period products. So some people were going to the shop and just finding that, that there weren't any there. And then, of course, the places that might have been providing free period products before, like schools or youth centers, were closed. So, yeah, combination of really unfortunate circumstances. Um, and it's something that we're really conscious of with our campaigning because some of these reusable products can seem quite expensive up front, even on the lower end of things. So the kind of cheaper menstrual cups or period pants are about £10. And for someone who's struggling to access a packet of tampons or pads each month, which might only be, you know, one or two pounds. Um, that's just totally out of reach, imagining spending 10 quid on something. Um, so we know that it's not possible for everybody to switch to a reusable product. And not just for economic reasons, but there are other kind of health reasons or circumstances that mean that some people don't want to or can't use those products. But we do try and make it um, kind of raise awareness of the fact that over a long time, there are these huge cost savings that we mentioned earlier. So if we can get schools and um, the healthcare system and community groups and things providing those reusable products, it's a brilliant long-term solution to this period inequality because you're, you're setting someone up for years instead of kind of requiring them to come back every single month to get every single month to get more products. Yeah. And I think um, you had mentioned earlier um, it, that you're working with government for plastic free period products in schools. Um, and I'm wondering sort of how, how have those conversations gone and, and uh what does it look like in practice to have plastic-free period products given for free in schools? 
Yeah, this was um, a campaign that we ran at the, I think it was towards the end of 2019, uh, where our government had finally committed to give schools free period products for their students, which was brilliant, just like such a big win. Um, And they'd also challenged all our schools to go plastic free by 2024. And we were kind of having to say to them uh both of these things are great by themselves but they don't really work together if you're going to be sending loads of products that contain plastic into schools you can't then also expect them to go plastic free like that just doesn't make sense um so we set up a petition and that did really well and we ended up being able to um influence the decisions of the people who were deciding how to implement that scheme for schools so now schools can order through this government scheme the kind of more mainstream big brand tampons pads and liners but they can also order organic tampons and pads uh, menstrual cups and washable pads so they have a really quite a good range of choice now and The way this system works here is that basically, depending on how many pupils you've got in your school, you get allocated a number of credits and then the school can spend those credits however they like. So it's it's totally up to the school what they order. Generally, the schools that have done our training are ordering a lot more reusable products than schools that haven't that makes sense (laughs) yeah and I think it's partly because they're confident to explain to the students how they work so yeah it's it's been really great to see that there has been a good uptake of those products and I think particularly because they're serving young people and young people are generally much more comfortable talking about topics like periods they're often much more environmentally inclined as well um so yeah it's brilliant that they can offer those to people who want to give them a go yeah that's great um and i'm wondering um so scotland recently mandated free access to period products for anyone who needs them and i'm wondering if you think a similar approach should be taken there in terms of how to implement that plan or if you have other thoughts on it? Yeah, I would love to see England following the way. I really would. And it's kind of amazing that that happened. It, it seemed like something that we could strive for in like 10 years or something. But Scotland are just super on it in uh, on lots of subjects <laughs> like this. And yeah, I think there's no reason why we shouldn't do that here. And you know, it's it's a basic uh, human need for anyone who's having a period. And in terms of the kind of environmental impact, whilst people aren't able to even access period products to begin with, or, you know, they can only access the cheapest ones, which unfortunately are probably the ones that are worst for their own health and worst for the environment, um, for those people, it's much more of a struggle to think about these bigger impacts like, oh, what impact is my period product having on the ocean? Or even, you know, the long-term impact on my health. 
because they're trying to meet their basic needs still. So if the government can do that and help people just meet their basic needs, then I think they have so much more capacity to think about these other issues. So I'm I'm totally for it. I would love to see our government offering <laughs> free period products to everybody. Yeah, me too. I think Canada's a while away from it, but <laughs> maybe soon. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed this stuff kind of all picks up momentum and it starts happening everywhere. Definitely. All right. Well, that those were all the themes that I wanted to get through, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to add or um, anything that you think our listeners could maybe do as a first step? Yeah. Um, I think the kind of first and easiest thing to do in this subject is to change flushing behavior because you literally like you don't need to go and buy anything you don't need to um spend some time getting used to a new product or anything you just need to make sure there's a bin in your bathroom and that everything that's not toilet paper poo and pee is going in the bin and that's something that people can do at home and then they can also make sure that um their workplaces have bins in all the toilet cubicles or you know make sure that their schools or their kids schools um or you know wherever has toilet has bins in all the toilet cubicles then i would say for people that are interested in changing products we've got a lot of information on our website and we've got a big kind of product guide which is it makes it really easy to compare the different products and all the aspects of the different types of products we've also got videos of people trying the products for the first time and they are genuine very kind of honest videos so it's nice to see people um that are just like you and kind of starting off with those things but there is just so much information online about this stuff now so i would say just do your research um, maybe ask family and friends or I've also found that social media has been a really great place to find out more about periods. Um, even in the places which are generally lacking in information and research like menstrual health disorders, for example, there is a lot of conversation online about those so that it's, it's a really good place for accessing support. Are there like um, a couple of accounts that would be really good to follow? It would depend what type of content you're after, I think. For sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, some, some accounts will specialize in kind of health and gynecolog gynecological um, aspects. And then you'll have others that are looking more at period equality and, um, uh, yeah, the kind of more social aspects of periods. And then... Lots of the stuff that we talk about is more environmentally focused, um, but we do also talk a lot about language. And actually something that we haven't touched on yet is language around gender. This is something that young people find really easy to embrace. And I found that some older generations are a bit unsure about it, but I guess it, it's kind of worth me mentioning because you you know people might come across different language and be like why are they referring to it like that um <laughs> <laughs> so basically with all of our content including our school's content we are totally gender neutral with our language and that's because um firstly not all 
girls and women will have a period for lots of different reasons. Some people choose not to, of course, and other people um, can't. And then we also have people who identify as other genders who do have periods because all you need to have a period is the female reproductive anatomy. So you might have uh, transitioned into a male but still have that anatomy and of course you can still have a period or you might be (laughs) non-binary you might be gender fluid intersex there's there's all sorts of other gender identities who can still have periods so um we think it's really important to use that gender neutral language and we just refer to people with periods because otherwise those people feel like they're not part of the conversation and then they are basically part of the group who often um, suffer from that lack of education and information where they need it. Yeah, definitely. So I guess part of being period positive is also being inclusive. Uh, that was a really great yeah. point to make. Uh, so thank you. Uh, well, great. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your time with me. Um, is there anything else that you want to add before we close out? Uh, I might just mention that on our website we have lots of discount codes for different plastic free products and yeah I think that's always worth mentioning because that um, initial cost can be a bit of a barrier for some people so we kind of do what we can to try and help out in that aspect and our website is citytosea.org.uk and then you can go to the plastic free periods page. That's perfect. And we'll, we'll link to it in the episode notes as well. So oh, people can great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks, Kristen.